0: There are some prominent skeptics who will say that Jesus never existed. Back in 2014, for instance, there in the Washington Post, they ran an article by a lecturer in religious studies from the University of Sydney in Australia. It was titled, Did Historical Jesus Really Exist? the evidence doesn't add up. In reality, however, the evidence for Jesus' existence in history is so overwhelming that the vast majority of scholars, including pretty radical skeptics, like, for instance, Bart Ehrman, accept that Jesus was a historical figure. But it's not just Jesus' existence that is abundantly evident, not only from the New Testament, but from the broader historical data. It's also his crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. So in addition to the New Testament documents, multiple independent non-Christian sources also confirm that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. For instance, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this in his annals. Quote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus that's Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. End quote. We also see references to the crucifixion of Jesus in the Greek writer Lucian of Samosata, And the Jewish historian Josephus, both of whom, by the way, wrote right in the first century, not long after Jesus' death. In fact, John Dominic Crossan, a very liberal New Testament scholar, no friend at all to Orthodox Christianity, has gone so far as to say this. Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. But, if Jesus did exist and was crucified by the Romans, as the New Testament asserts, as the broader historical evidence confirms, then it raises a provocative question, doesn't it? How do you explain the rise and rapid expansion of the Christian church Followers of Jesus immediately after his crucifixion. You know, the record of Jesus's life contained in the New Testament, which, by the way, pretty much all that we know about Jesus comes from the New Testament documents. They clearly indicate that Jesus made incredible claims about himself during his life. He claimed to be the unique Son of God who existed before He came into the world. One of the famous verses that everyone knows, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus was sent into the world. He also claimed to be the Messianic King who was promised in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. He claimed the right to forgive people's sins. Imagine that. Just imagine someone here today turning to you and saying, your sins are forgiven. But he did that. And he offered eternal life to whoever would believe in him. He asserted that He would raise people from the dead, and that he himself would judge the world at the end of the age. John chapter 5. But when he ended up being condemned by the Jews as a blasphemer and executed by the Romans in a manner that was reserved for the worst of criminals, crucifixion, it seemed to expose Jesus as a fraud and to leave his disciples disillusioned. Indeed, the New Testament itself indicates that his disciples abandoned him when he was arrested and went into hiding after his crucifixion. So what could possibly explain the fact that very soon after Jesus' death, at which his disciples left him and went into hiding, very soon afterward, they came out of hiding, began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the church began to multiply and spread throughout the known world. So that by the end of the first century, there were Christian churches throughout the Roman Empire, and by the end of the fourth century, the Roman Empire who had put Jesus to death by crucifixion in the first century, now declared him officially to be the Savior and Lord. What explains that turn of events? What could have happened? Well, the answer, of course, is what Easter is all about. And this Easter Sunday, I want to open up a story Recorded in Luke 24, verses 36 through 43, which brings the answer to life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. If you don't have a Bible, just listen as I read. This is the inspired and inerrant word written According to the account of the eyewitnesses, it says, verse 36, And they were talking about, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? The story recorded in that passage, it unfolds in three stages. So first, Jesus appears to his disciples alive again in the body, verse 36. Then second, Jesus' disciples are afraid and think that they are seeing a spirit, verse 37. And then third, Jesus proves it really is him, Alive again in the body, verses 38 through 43. So I just want to work through the story in those three stages, and then I want to talk about what this means for us today. So first, if you're going back a chapter in Luke's gospel, the end of Luke 23 tells us how Jesus had died on a Roman cross, how he was taken down and buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea on Friday evening. The beginning of Luke 24 tells us the story of how after resting on the next day, Saturday, because it was a Sabbath, Jesus' disciples had come to his tomb early Sunday morning, and they found it empty. And while they marveled at this, they didn't know what it meant yet. It turns out, of course, that Jesus had risen from the dead and come out of the tomb. Because the next part of chapter 24 tells this now famous story of how the risen Jesus appeared to two of his disciples who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, disillusioned and discouraged after having watched Jesus be crucified. And then, when they arrived back to Jerusalem, having seen the Lord alive again, to tell the disciples what they'd seen, they discovered that Jesus had already been there too, and that he had appeared alive again to Peter as well. And so they ended up swapping now post-resurrection appearance stories. Our text picks up at this point. Verse 36, it says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So there they are, a group of disciples, includes at least the 11 apostles, the two disciples who had come back from Emmaus, and a group of other disciples. Small group, less than 200. They're talking about the fact that both Peter and now these two disciples who'd come back from Emmaus had seen Jesus alive again, and then suddenly Jesus appears right in their midst. Now, John tells about this in his gospel as well. And he tells us that they were in a room with the doors locked. Why? They're already on edge. They're wondering whether the Jewish leaders who had gotten Jesus crucified might come after them next. Not surprisingly, not surprisingly then, if when Jesus all of a sudden this appears right among them in that locked room, having apparently passed through the locked doors without opening them. It scared the living daylights out of them. In fact, that's what the text says, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened. And this is no doubt one of the reasons why Jesus spoke to them saying, Peace to you. To quickly affirm to them they were not in any danger. So first, Jesus appeared to his disciples alive again in the body, verse 36. And now second, Jesus' disciples were afraid and thought they were seeing a spirit, verse 37. We're told in the rest of verse 37 that while the disciples knew that Jesus had appeared to them, they knew that he had appeared to them, they were startled, they were frightened, they were scared out of their minds, yet initially they thought they saw a spirit, In other words, their original conclusion was that they must be seeing Jesus' ghost. Now what this shows us is that the idea that Jesus, whom they had just seen brutally beaten and killed on a cross and buried in a tomb, that he was now standing before them whole, alive again, in the body, that was not at all something that they were expecting to happen. Rather, they were no more likely to believe that that had happened than we would be likely to believe that one of our loved ones who died had come back and was standing before us in the body alive again. In other words, they were a lot like us in their reaction. We too would probably think, I must be seeing a ghost. And thus, while they could not deny that they were seeing some kind of appearance of Jesus standing in front of them, as had happened to Peter and the two disciples from Emmaus prior to this, yet they still didn't assume that he had risen bodily from the dead. Instead, they opted for what seemed to be the more likely scenario. Somehow, they're being visited by his disembodied spirit. Well, no wonder they were so scared. So, second, Jesus' disciples are afraid. They think they're seeing a spirit. Verse 37. Now, third, Jesus proved it really was him alive again in the body. This is verses 38 through 43. So in verse 38, Jesus spoke to his stunned, his terrified disciples, and he said this, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So first, Jesus pointed out that their fears were unfounded. It wasn't a ghost they were seeing, it was Jesus himself, their beloved master. He was back. They had no more reason to fear at the sight of him now than they had when he had been with them over the last three years. Second, Jesus gently rebuked them for doubting that his resurrection had occurred. After all, if you have read the accounts of the eyewitnesses about Jesus' life recorded in the four Gospels, then you know as well that as the disciples reflected back on their time following Jesus, Jesus had actually repeatedly, like six or seven times, told them, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. So they had told him, them multiple times. They had already heard of his previous appearances to Peter, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And now, as he appeared a third time to all of them together, Jesus is saying, why do doubts arise in your hearts? There's no reason for you to continue to doubt that I have indeed risen bodily from the dead. And Jesus, you see in the text, is resolved to help his frail disciples stop doubting and begin believing by showing them various proofs that he truly was alive. Now these proofs are specifically designed to demonstrate that what they were seeing was not a ghost, as they had initially supposed, but that they were seeing him alive again in a physical body that had been transformed, had been glorified. So the first proof that Jesus gave is there in verses 39 through 40. If you look at the text, it says, he says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now John's gospel adds that he showed them his side as well. And what he's doing here is he's showing them the places where his body had been pierced through during his crucifixion. Nails had been driven through his hands and his feet to attach him to that Roman cross. And a spear had later on been driven up into his side by a centurion to confirm that he was truly dead. And apparently what we see is that in his body now, in his risen state, there were marks left indicating where these things had happened to him so that they would be able to look at them and actually feel the marks. Now the point of this is twofold. First, it confirmed that this person they were looking at really was the same Jesus whom they had known before, whom they had lived with for three years, and whom they had watched be crucified in his body. And that he was now alive again in that same body. It it wasn't just a disembodied spirit that they were seeing. And Jesus invited them to prove this to their own doubting minds by literally coming up close and looking close and even touching his body to see that there really were the marks of the nails and the spear. We should just pause here for one moment and consider what this passage tells us about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body. So on the one hand, the fact that it bore the marks where the nails and the spear had pierced him on the cross, shows that Jesus' resurrection body was the same body that he had had before his death. On the other hand, there are things in the accounts of these post-resurrection appearances that indicate that something had happened to his physical body. It wasn't easily recognizable when he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They didn't initially know who he was. Uh, He had appeared in this room through locked doors. He had disappeared and then reappeared in a different place. All of these indicate something was different about his resurrected body. It was the same body, but it was in a slightly different condition, It had been made new and improved in different ways through the process of resurrection. This wasn't, in other words, a mere resuscitation. This was a resurrection unto glory. Paul described the resurrection body even what our resurrection bodies as believers will be like, in 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44, he describes it as imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Now, exactly what Paul meant by each of those terms that he uses there in 1 Corinthians 15, it's difficult to know precisely. There's an element of mystery to it. But essentially, he meant that resurrection in some state Sent liberates the human nature from all of the effects of the fall and brings it into a state of perfection. In this Jesus' case, his human nature was never subjected to original sin like ours were, are, right? So we're born into the world as sinners, bent upon sin. Jesus didn't inherit original sin from Adam like we did. But his human nature during his life, it did lack a certain level of glory. You think of what the prophet Isaiah said of him. He said he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire. him. Just an average Joe, right? And it was subject to certain weaknesses. So you know from the Gospels, you saw that he experienced hunger and thirst. Think of the woman at the well. He got tired and needed sleep. Remember, he fell asleep in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, even during the storm. He was vulnerable to physical pain and death. He died on the cross. But after his resurrection, all these weaknesses were eliminated. And his body was made perfect. Hence, the disciples not recognizing him at first so that Paul could say that it was glorious in Philippians 3.21. So, the first proof that Jesus gave the disciples that they were seeing him alive again in a glorified physical body was that he invited them literally to look up close, to see and to touch his hands and his feet where the nails and the spear had pierced him on the cross. The second proof he gave Verses 41 through 43. Look there, it says, And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, when it says that the disciples still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, I don't think, actually, that here, it means that they still were harboring sinful unbelief. Like, I don't know. No, I think this was simply a way of expressing their amazement. right, at Something that seemed too good to be true. It's like when we say, I just can't believe it. That's what they're doing. But Jesus wants to remove any vestige of doubt and strengthen their faith by doing something else which would prove to them that what they were really seeing with their eyes was him alive again in his glorified physical body and not just some ghost. So he asks for a piece of food and they give him a piece of cooked fish and he just eats it right in front of them. Now it was a powerful demonstration to them. You can tell that it was because The eyewitnesses told Luke about it, and he wrote it down in this book. Why was it such a powerful demonstration? Because clearly, that would not be possible for some disembodied spirit to do. Only someone with a genuine human body could eat in that way. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus still got hungry in his resurrected body. There's no indication that Jesus' glorified human nature was subject to those kinds of frailties. It just means that he was still capable of eating if he wanted to. He had a real human nature. Now I know, you kids especially, you've got questions for me about Jesus' resurrection body and how it functioned. You know, we still, we just aren't given enough information to answer all those questions. So you can come ask me if you want. I'll probably just say, you know, I don't know about that. But the point being made here is, by this second proof, is that Jesus really was alive again in his resurrected physical body that had been glorified. So think about this passage. First, Jesus appeared to his disciples alive again in the body, verse 36. Second, Jesus' disciples were afraid and they thought that they were seeing a spirit, verse 37. And then third, Jesus proved that it really was him alive again in the body, verses 38 through 43. Now, let me just pose this question. What is this text, recorded in Luke's gospel, what does it mean for us? It's been passed down to us, that's why it was written down. I want to highlight three ways that we ought to respond to, to the truths revealed in this passage. First, we should believe and not doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead in a glorified physical body. Now, this is the most obvious application of the text, isn't it? Everything that Jesus did in this story was designed to get his disciples to stop doubting and believe that after dying on a Roman cross and being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, he had risen bodily from the dead in a glorified physical body after three days, and he'd come out of the tomb. And the reason why this story was written down by Luke was so that all of us who read it throughout the generations could also stop doubting and believe the same thing as well upon the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, if we're going to understand this story as Luke intends it, namely, as a reliable record of historical events, things which really happened in history roughly 2,000 years ago, drawn from the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the people who were there living in that day. If we're going to understand this story as that, Then no other explanation makes sense. You know, some skeptics have tried to say that, well, this may have been uh, a faithful record of what the eyewitnesses thought they saw. They were just mistaken. And these skeptics have offered various explanations for what led to their confusion. So some say that it was hallucinations, that's what's going on. It was hallucinations of Jesus on the part of his disciples after his death that made them think they saw the risen Jesus. It's not uncommon, they say, for this to happen after the traumatic death of a loved one. The problem with this explanation, though, is that it just doesn't fit with what the eyewitnesses actually say. Both here in Luke and in the other Gospels and in the book of Acts, it clearly says that the Jesus appeared to his disciples, both individually and at times in groups, and that he did so repeatedly over a period of 40 days, and then he stopped. Now, one or more of Jesus' disciples having some kind of hallucination of Jesus after his death, that's one thing. But there's simply no precedent for multiple people experiencing the exact same hallucinations and all at the same time, sometimes in groups, over and over again. That's not plausible. Other skeptics, recognizing the weakness of that explanation, have suggested that, you know, the testimony of the early disciples recorded in the New Testament, it must mean that they actually did see Jesus in some fashion. But what they saw was Jesus appearing to them as a spirit. And having seen his ghost, as it were, they mistakenly thought that he had risen from the dead. Now again, the problem with this explanation is that it doesn't fit what the eyewitnesses say, right? All four Gospels actually tell us that the disciples went to the tomb of Jesus and found it empty. The body was gone. Jesus wasn't there. And then Matthew's gospel, for instance, tells us that Jesus appeared to some of his women disciples first, actually, and it says in the text that they grabbed a the hold of his feet and worshipped him. We've seen this morning. The account recorded in Luke's gospel goes to great lengths to say that on another occasion, Jesus appeared to all of his, a bunch of his disciples at one time, and that they actually initially assumed that they were seeing a ghost, and Jesus went to great lengths to prove to them that they weren't. He invited them to touch his physical body, to see the marks of the nails. He ate a piece of broiled fish in front of them. You see, if you want to deny that Jesus rose bodily from the dead... You have to explain the testimony of the eyewitnesses recorded in the New Testament by saying that either the eyewitnesses or the New Testament writers simply weren't telling the truth about what happened. Now, some who go this route say the New Testament writers, listen, Jeremy, you're naive. You don't understand how it worked back then. I mean, these documents weren't intended to be taken as true history. I mean, this is just mythology, they say. Look, the point is the spiritual lessons it teaches. But look, that just isn't the case. In fact, go back and read the opening verses to this gospel. You know what Luke says? He writes to a man named Theophilus. And he says, Theophilus, I'm going to write for you in this book an orderly account of the things that have taken place based upon me looking into it, talking to those who had seen these things and then passed it down to us. That's what he says. Or consider Paul's words that I read for you this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, 5-6. He describes the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus you know, very straightforwardly. Remember he says, this is the good news. Christ died for our sins and that was in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried And then he rose again, and that was in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared alive again, it says, to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which was a euphemism for death. In other words, this isn't mythology. The New Testament authors claim to be writing about true events in history, which, as we see there with Paul, could actually be verified by the people who had seen them happen, Paul says, hey, most of them are still alive if you want to go talk with them. See, the only other option is really to say that something nefarious is going on here. You know, the eyewitnesses, the New Testament writers, they were intentionally lying. They deliberately wrote these books as if they were a record of true events in history when they really knew that they were false. And they did so in an attempt to salvage the Jesus movement after his death. Now, the problem with this is that not only does it contradict what we know of the character of these earliest Christians reflected in their own writings, I mean, go and read the Apostle Paul and and see if he sounds like a duplicitous, nefarious character to you. But in addition to that, we see that the people that wrote these books almost to a man the eyewitnesses and the people that wrote the books many of whom suffered greatly for the things that they claimed were true and indeed many of them died now it's one thing if a per- people die for a lie right but usually it's because they're deluded and they might you know delude other people and trick them into believing the same thing and then and then they die together for what is a lie. But it's a whole other thing for people to propagate what they know to be a lie and even die noble deaths for it. That is highly implausible. How much more likely, think about this, is just a far simpler explanation that the eyewitnesses are telling the truth. They really did see Jesus alive again in the body on multiple occasions. And they had it confirmed to them by various proofs, such that they were convinced 100% that this was true. And the testimony of the eyewitnesses concerning these things has been now recorded for us in the Gospels, in these letters of the New Testament. That explanation actually seems quite reasonable and makes perfect sense of all the evidence. The only hitch, of course is that it requires you to believe in the God of the Bible and that he does act supernaturally in the world that he has made. So yes, it is true. If you approach the New Testament with the presupposition already in your mind that you know, the God of the Bible doesn't exist and supernatural events really can't happen, then you're going to find it difficult to believe the New Testament's witness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But if you open yourself up to the possibility that perhaps the God revealed in the pages of the Bible does actually exist, and that he, as the Bible tells us, intervenes in the world that he created to do things in history, well then, there is no reason why the testimony of the New Testament cannot be true. Indeed, from that perspective, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it's not implausible at all that the God who created the universe in the beginning could do such things. So I call everyone in this room, then, to heed the message of our text, to stop doubting and believe that Jesus Christ is alive again in a resurrected body. So that's the first way we ought to respond to the truth revealed in this passage, is that we should stop doubting and believe that Jesus has risen from the dead in a glorified physical body. Now, the second way we have to respond to this is that we should understand why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is important for us. All right? It must be said that while the main purpose of our text is to convince us that Jesus did rise again from the dead in a glorified physical body, yet simply believing that truth won't do us any good by itself, will it? In fact, there's a famous... Account where, having studied all the evidence, a Jewish scholar named Pinchas Lapid actually came to the conclusion that, yep, the best explanation of the historical evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. But as a Jew, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So he just wrote it off as an anomaly in history, right? What does it mean? I mean, to use James' words in James chapter 2, even the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead and they shudder. Rather, we must not only believe that it happened, but we also must understand it. Why is it significant for you and for me? And that's what I want to explain now. And you know, it really begins by understanding that the New Testament teaches that this person, Jesus, actually existed Before he came into the world as a man. He existed, in other words, eternally in the past as God, the Son. And then he took on a human nature and he was born into the world as Jesus of Nazareth. The God, man. Now you say, come on. That's what the texts tell us. John chapter 1, verse 1 says of Jesus, describing him as the Word, capital W. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he goes on to say of Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is fully God and became Fully man. And if I had time, I could show you how this is not just one text that says this. This is affirmed in many passages of the New Testament. Now, this truth, as awesome and as mysterious as that is, is vitally important to our faith because it explains how Jesus could be our Savior. So Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man in order to be the mediator between God and man. You remember Paul's words, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And in order to do what was necessary to save us as men and women from the consequences of our sin and reconcile us to God, he had to become one of us. And we had all sinned before God in many ways, broken his commands in thought, in word, in deed. And so Jesus had to come into the world as a man and do what we had failed to do, to live a righteous human life before God, keeping all of his commands perfectly on our behalf. And then as a sinless man, he had to go to the cross and bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place as our substitute. On the cross, And when he rose again on the third day in this glorified human nature, as we've seen in our text, he then had finished what needed to be done to save us. He had won our victory over sin and death. He had inherited the good promises of God on our behalf before ascending into heaven, as Acts chapter 1 tells us, to take his seat at the right hand of God, to be enthroned as our eternal king and priest. So if your kids say, where is Jesus now? He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God in glory, reigning as king over all. And you see, brothers and sisters, none of this would have been possible if the eternal person of the Son, who was fully God for all eternity, had not condescended to take on a human nature and enter into our world and become fully man in Jesus Christ. Because only as a man could he have served as a representative for men. And only as a man could he have stood in as a substitute for men and women like you and me. And only as a man could he have raised bodily from the dead and now reign as the king and priest of mankind in his resurrected human nature. The great Cappadocian church father, Gregory of Nyssa, In the 4th century, he said, What he did not assume, take on, he could not redeem. But because Jesus did condescend to enter into his own creation, he came into the world. He came into his creation, and his creation didn't know who he was. That's what John tells us in John 1. He came into the world because of that. We who believe in him can share in the benefits of his saving works. What he did can become ours when we simply trust in him. His death as a man can atone for our sins as men and women and reconcile us to God. His bodily resurrection as a man can save us as men and women from death and give life to our mortal bodies as well. Indeed, if we've come to believe that Jesus has risen bodily from the dead and if we then not only believe in him but trust in him as our Lord and Savior, then we can be certain that he will raise us from the dead as well in glorified bodies like his own. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty 20-23. He says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man... As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And brothers and sisters, the almost unfathomable reality is that even as Jesus has risen from the dead in a glorified body, that's what we've seen in our text, right? so he will remain in that condition forever. In the risen Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has taken to himself a glorified human nature for all eternity. He's never going to shed his humanity, body or soul, because the moment he did so would be the moment that he would cease to be the mediator between God and men. And we would no longer have access to God through him. And to do that would be to fail to keep his promises to us. And and this he can never do because he is perfectly faithful. So Jesus will always be fully God and fully man. As the eternal divine son, he has united himself to a human nature for all eternity, which his disciples saw and touched, so that he might unite himself to us. As human beings for all eternity who believe in him, his bride, his body, his covenant people. This is what the bodily resurrection of Jesus means for us. So the second way we have to respond to this truth revealed in our passage is we should understand why it matters. Why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is important for us. And the third way is this, and this is finally. We should trust in him and experience peace, joy, and love as a result. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that is, if you have not personally believed in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world, and if you have not, then put your trust in Him for salvation and become following Him in your life as His disciple, then I want to speak to you first. Our text this morning testifies to you through the witness of the eyewitnesses who were there that Jesus Christ is alive Again, in a glorified physical body, so that you might believe in Him, having heard this good news, as the risen Savior and Lord. So I want to ask you, have you done that? Have you acknowledged, first of all, your sins before your holy Creator, the God of Scripture, that you've rebelled against Him in many ways? Sin is not just a bunch of mistakes and missteps. Sin is knowing what's right and not doing it. And we do that again and again and again. Have you believed in Jesus, the Son of God, become a man to save you from your sins because the wages of sin is death and so he died in your place and rose again? Have you put your trust in him for salvation from death and sins eternal consequence hell if not i just hope that you will do that this morning maybe right now in your seat or if or if you must wait in the privacy of your home after the service bow to him in prayer cry out to him to the risen jesus to cleanse you from your sins and to give you eternal life through his death and resurrection he will do it as for you brothers and sisters I pray that the truth revealed in this text this morning, that Jesus is alive in his glorified body. I pray that it will affect you in various ways as you believe that it's true. I pray first that it will fill you with joy. Right, Our Savior, our Lord, is alive. Again, he's, not, he's risen from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of God. All is not lost. His death on the cross was not the end and so neither will your death be the end. His resurrection life means resurrection life for us as well. It means life for our soul in this age, being born again. And it means glorified life for our bodies and souls in the age to come, free from all the effects of sin. Indeed, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead means the redemption of all things will happen when he returns. So may our hearts rejoice with a joy that we can't fully express, that is full of glory when we grasp these things by faith. And I pray also that the truth recorded in this passage will fill us with peace. Christ has risen bodily from the dead. That means God the Father has accepted his death as full payment for all of your sins. And when he raised him from the dead to be glorified, that means that you now have the promise of life in him. So, as we read of all of this in our text, we read of him standing before his disciples in a glorified body. We can know the debt for my sin has been paid, the cup of God's wrath has been taken away, he took it in my place. There's no condemnation now for us who are in Christ Jesus. And and now he says to us, like he said to his disciples in the passage, peace to you. No more fear of death and hell. No more guilt. No more judgment from God upon us. We have the risen Lord as our mediator in heaven, making intercession before God on our behalf because of his blood. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray that you will rest in this afresh as you read of his resurrection this morning. And finally, I pray that the truth revealed in this passage will fill us with love for Christ. And As we see him presented in our text, alive again in his glorified body, we're reminded he's united himself to us for all eternity. He's taken a human nature that he might be the, bra- the great bridegroom. And we are his bride. Who can fathom the depths of that truth? What matchless love is displayed in the risen Christ? And because we know that we're not worthy, we were hell-deserving sinners. It just all resounds to his glory alone. And and as we grasp these truths by faith, I just pray that our hearts might be enlarged and filled with a reciprocal love for Christ, a love that transcends all other loves in this life. It can't be otherwise for us, brothers and sisters. Well, in conclusion, what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of the Romans that explains the immediate rise and rapid expansion of the church? The answer is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after his death and appeared alive again to his disciples in a glorified physical body. And he proved that it was really him and not a ghost by allowing them to touch him and eating a piece of fish right in front of them so that as difficult as it was for them to accept it at first, they came to believe that their Lord was not a fraud, that everything he had said about himself was true and that he was alive again in the body and he'd finished the work of redemption and and he was going to reign forever as God's king. You know, the second to last verse of this book, Luke's Gospel, says this, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And you know what they did once they got there. They just started hog heaven telling everyone they could who would listen he's alive he really is the son of god and savior of the world you want to read about that read the book of acts right that's the answer to the question what happened after Jesus' crucifixion that explains the explosion of the christian church well the skeptic will never know but those who believe the new testament know exactly what happened let's affirm it together shall we he is risen That's what happened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glory of these truths. We thank you for your scripture where you've told us about them, but we thank you even more that they're true, that this is the true account of what happened and that Christ is risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. He came out of the tomb in a glorified body, as Paul said, the first fruits from among the dead. And that we who have believed in him will experience the same resurrection when he comes at the end of the age to take us to himself forever. And Father, we pray that you would give us now a burning zeal in our hearts to announce this same good news to all who we can. And that even those who are here today hearing of these things, that it wouldn't just be sounds bouncing off the eardrums, but that you would open their hearts to respond in repentance and faith that their lives might be transformed for the better forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.